this morning we will go, be going back to the book of Genesis, and we will be reading from chapter 40, Genesis chapter 40, the entire chapter, verses 1 through 23. So, turn with me to Genesis chapter 40. Some time after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in his custody. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers, who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, we have had dreams, and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, in my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. And as soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, this is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into this pit. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket there were all sorts of baked goods for Pharaoh. But the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days, and in three days Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree and the birds will eat the flesh from you. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants, and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. And he restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker, as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him.
This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. I'm David Buving. I'm the pastor of youth and worship here, and I get the honor of taking us back into Genesis this morning. A story all about suffering, waiting, um, something I think is probably pretty relatable to most of us. Eleven years. Eleven years separated from his family, completely out of control of his own life. Sometimes a slave, other times a prisoner, the entire time without anyone who spoke his native language, away from people who shared the same beliefs as him. I know it's been a couple weeks, but I'm sure you remember the story, Joseph, the dreamer, as his brothers referred to him. Favorite son of his father was taken by his brothers, sold into slavery, and he ends up in Egypt. You can imagine the shock for him as his whole world crumbles, going from beloved son to slave who no one cares about. I have to wonder if those first few weeks he was hoping that his father would figure out what happened and come running for him. But no one comes. He's alone. He gets bought by Potiphar, a powerful man, likely a high-ranking general in Pharaoh's army, and he has to be wondering at this point, what is happening? Like, what is going on with the dreams that God has given me? I'm supposed to be some kind of a ruler. Uh, my family's supposed to bow down to me, whatever that looks like. But now I'm a servant and my family doesn't even know where I am. So how in the world is what God has told me going to come to pass? He's a foreigner living in a culture that looks nothing like his own. But he works hard, and God blesses him, and he works. He becomes a fairly important slave in Potiphar's house. Still a slave, but one with a lot of responsibilities, a lot of power. He works hard, and everything prospers under him. And as he works for this important man, Potiphar, his boss's wife, attempts to seduce him. And then he flees because of his love for God and his desire to please his master. And she accuses him of taking advantage of her. Life is not going well for Joseph. Now he's been in prison, and the text tells us he's been there for some time. We don't know exactly how long each part of this breaks up. By the end of chapter 40, though, we know he's been in Egypt for 11 years. And at the end of those 11 years, things are still not going well. 11 years is a long time to suffer with no end in sight. But as he lives in this prison, two high-ranking officials from uh, of Pharaoh's come and get sent to that prison. The chief baker, which would be you know kind of the private chef of Pharaoh, and then the cupbearer, the two men responsible for overseeing all the food and drinks that Pharaoh would consume. We don't know exactly why they were sent there. The text tells us that the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense, some sort of offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers. It could be as simple as Pharaoh got food poisoning and he was like, you are the ones responsible for this. Uh, all the way to maybe there were rumors. He heard something, some kind of mutiny going on. He thought maybe they were working behind his back to overthrow him or just to cause problems 
for him as king. Whatever the case, they're put into Joseph's care. And as a prisoner, Joseph was actually given duties to care for the other prisoners, but we have to be careful not to sugarcoat his story. Even with these responsibilities he's given, his situation is really bad. Um, I feel like maybe some of the kid books that I read as a kid, Joseph is kind of like always on this constant upward trajectory. Like bad stuff happens, but mostly it's like God's doing something awesome. And while that is true behind the scenes, even with his responsibility for caring for these prisoners, he is very much a prisoner himself. Verse 3 tells us Joseph was confined, so there's no sense that he was like ruling in that prison. Or look at Psalm 105 that speaks of Joseph and says, I think there's a slide for that one. Sorry. Coming up? Oh, there it is. Cool. All right. (laughs) Joseph, who was sold as a slave, his feet were hurt with fetters, his neck was put in a collar of iron. As we look at Joseph's life this morning, as he suffers in the pit, as he refers to it, I want to help us see how this connects with our life. So hopefully you have your outline and notes in front of you. Our first connection point is going to be this. We are called to be faithful, even when it seems that God has forgotten us. Certainly we all know the theological truth that God has not forgotten us. But even if you know that truth, it can be easy at times to look at the circumstances of life and say, what is going on? Where are you, God, in this? Do you really care about me? Are you really around? Maybe you've prayed for healing for years and you still struggle with the same illness or disability. Maybe, maybe God just feels distant from you, and it doesn't matter what you do. You can't seem to, to drum up feelings for God. Maybe you've prayed for years for the restoration of some relationship, and yet that person remains distant. Or, or rather than personal pain, it might be watching those around you suffer, or, or watching a country, a culture that you've loved and you grew used to change in ways that make you feel out of place. I don't know what the exact circumstances of each of your lives are, but I think we can all relate to this idea of suffering. And Joseph, and just like Joseph, we're called to be faithful. Joseph struggles with slavery and and imprisonment and, and this horrible suffering, but he also struggles with the fact that he's being forced into a foreign culture that doesn't match the way that he thinks about things, doesn't match his beliefs, and I think this is a really relatable, important thing for us right now. The world is changing fast. Like, even if you want to understand what change is going on, you still probably won't be able to keep up with it. People who are on the cutting edge of trying to, like, know what the latest thing is still are usually not caught up. Things are changing fast, and so it can leave us feeling like foreigners. So how are we faithful in times like that? How do we continue to trust God then? Like Joseph, it's by living in peace, trusting God even when the world around us seems foreign and out of control. When the world around us seems foreign and out of control, most people have one of two responses. You could say it's like fight or flight. 
Caitlin and I have very different responses. She always likes when I say her name in the middle of sermon. <laughs> very different responses to stress. Uh, and everybody likes to make fun of me because whenever I feel stress, my like, brain just shuts down. I'm ready to go to sleep. It can be like 10 a.m. in the morning and I have some kind of a conflict with somebody. I'm just ready to go to bed. It's done. Like My brain shuts off versus Caitlin's kind of the opposite. Uh, can't sleep if she's stressed. So you can imagine as we deal with stress on our own how that works out. But when we look at the world around us and it freaks us out, we're likely to either react in anger, lashing out in any way possible, attacking anyone who even looks or sounds like they might possibly have something to do with the enemy, whoever that is. Or we disconnect, this is just too much for me to process, I can't have thoughts on this, I can't work in this, I'm just going to go hide on my own and not worry about what's going on. But the New Testament tells a very different story. Paul specifically in Romans 12 says this, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And Romans 12 is not alone in this. Uh, we're reading through the New Testament with a group of our uh, youth group students right now. And as I've been reading through, we're getting right to the end. So reading through the small books towards the end, I'm struck over and over again by these statements. You will suffer. You will suffer. And constantly being told, love each other well. Live at peace. Give no one reason to be offended by you. We're called not to disengage with the world, not to attack those around us, but just like Joseph, to live faithfully, peacefully, loving those around us. Not to lash out in anger, but actually still to actively seek out your enemies, but in order to love them, care for them, feed them, clothe them. So that's kind of our first question to wrestle with today. What is your tendency to wage war, maybe on Facebook, or to disconnect from the mess? Or... Can we biblically engage with the world by trusting God and loving those around us? But just like Joseph, our suffering is not just related to cultural stuff. Many of us uh, can relate to Joseph's 11 years of suffering, right? Like things that happen in our life don't just go away magically. So what do we do? We are called to trust God even when his timeline does not match our timeline. I don't know about you, but I can, I can handle a lot when I know what the end date is. Like when I know, like I just have to get through this, this, and this, and then everything's going to be okay. Like that's, that's doable. But suffering when we don't know when it's going to end, when like Joseph, it's like there is no positive option in sight. Suffering can be really hard in those moments. And while God does invite us to call out to him, cry out to him in our pit, in the despair, and, and tell him how we're feeling, he also invites us to continue to trust in him even in those moments. 
knowing with confidence that even in our darkest moments, he is good. In order to do this, we have to trust the wisdom of God. I love how Isaiah puts it in Isaiah chapter 40. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? Who made him understand? And who taught him the paths of justice? And taught him knowledge? And showed him the way of understanding? Obviously all rhetorical questions that it's ridiculous that we might consider that we might have advice to give to God. And while, again, we acknowledge that with our lips, how often do we wrestle with God, if you just did things the way and in the timing that I wanted you to, my life would be so much better. But central to trusting God is is remembering. Remembering constantly, God, you are wiser than I am. And that doesn't mean we have to try to explain why God is right, even in those moments, right? It's okay to say, God, I don't know why you're doing this, and also say, but God, I trust that you're good. I would say that's probably actually more of a step of faith to say, I'm going to go ahead and hold on to God. I don't know why you're doing this. I'm not going to justify it. I'm going to trust that you have a plan here. And as this story moves on, God uses Joseph's suffering. One morning, Joseph is making his rounds around the prison, checking on the prisoners, maybe bringing them food. And then he comes to these Two men who are looking discouraged. These two important officials who are in prison who are looking discouraged. And I can only imagine Joseph's response. And maybe this is more of a reflection on me than on him. But after years and years in prison, cast out of his homeland, being falsely accused, and that's why he's in prison, he looks at these guys discouraged. And he's like, are you kidding me? Like, get over it. My life is so much worse than yours. But that's not what Joseph says. Joseph looks at them, and he sees that they're discouraged, and he says, why are your faces downcast today? He responds in compassion, even in the midst of his own suffering, as he sees others suffering. And so they tell him they both had dreams, and no one's available to interpret those dreams. And and what they're getting at when they say that is um, as important officials in Pharaoh's office, they would have been able to have access to Pharaoh's dream interpreters, which would have been, you know, wise men who had books and learning and all kinds of stuff that they could have explained what these dreams are. So they're, they're used to that kind of life, and now they're in prison. They don't have access to that, and so they're having these dreams. They're freaking out. They want someone to explain them to him. And I love how Joseph responds, how frankly he responds at the end of verse 8. They say, we've had dreams, no one to interpret them. And Pharaoh says to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please, tell them to me. The same God who'd given him dreams that he was still waiting for God to fulfill. Joseph's actions prove that he still has full confidence in God. And so the question for us today is, Does your confidence in God show to those around you? The next connection point on your outline is this. God's people live with God's name on their lips, even in the midst of suffering. 
Joseph is still confident in the God of his fathers, the God who's chosen him, the God who's shown him what's going to happen, and it shows up in the way that he talks. What flows out of your mouth when you're confronted with suffering? When someone you love is facing difficulty, do we point them towards Jesus, or do we give them worldly advice? I want to be careful here because people who are suffering don't need cliches. So how do we speak of the goodness of God in the midst of suffering without using cliches? I think a big part of this is going to be inviting people into our own story, which requires vulnerability and can be really difficult. Allowing people to see God has worked in our suffering. A few months ago at winter camp, I was talking with Anna Burnham about how some people have the ability to say things so simply, and it's so beautiful, and then it's like other times other people say very similar things, and it doesn't feel quite as beautiful. And we're like, what is the difference there? It's that you can sense when someone has worked through the truths on their own. They're not just repeating something they've read on a bumper sticker. So we have to internalize the truths of God's word and apply those to our own lives as we struggle so that we have that gift to give to other people. This means that when others are suffering, we come alongside them, we, we grieve with them, cry with them, pray with them. We, we do all that, and yet at the same time, we boldly say, I know that God is good. I know that he loves you, and I know that God is in control. And we'll see in a moment, Joseph does just that as he gets vulnerable with these two officials. First, the cupbearer tells his dream to Joseph. And he says, In my dream, there was a vine before me. And on that vine, there were three branches. As soon as it budded, it blossomed, shot forth. And the clusters ripened into grapes. And Pharaoh's cup was in my hand. And I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup into Pharaoh's hand. Joseph's response here is clear and direct. God has spoken. This is the meaning of the dream. He just says, In three days... Pharaoh will come to you, he'll restore you to your place of honor, and you'll once again be his cupbearer. Joseph speaks with such confidence. Notice what he says when he gets to verse 14. Remember me when it is well with you. He doesn't say, if things work out the way that I think they're going to work out, I'm pretty sure this is going to be good. No, he says with confidence, like in three days, when everything's good, then go ahead and please mention me to Pharaoh. And then Joseph pours out his heart as he shares his own suffering with the cupbearer. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here, as I have done nothing, or I have also done nothing that should have put me into this pit. It's a beautiful picture of vulnerability that it takes to engage with others in their suffering. And after hearing the cupbearer's good report, the chief baker's like, okay, hook me up. I want to hear what my interpretation is. And it doesn't go quite so well for him. Joseph says, I also, or sorry, he tells Joseph his dream. I also had a dream. There's three cake baskets on my head. And in the uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked foods for Pharaoh. But the birds were eating it out of the baskets on my head. And Joseph says, your dream is clear as well. You will be lifted out of this pit, 
and hanged instead of restored. In fact, the birds from your dream, they will eat on your flesh. And three days pass, everything that Joseph says comes true. Verse 20, it says, On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored his chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cupbearer the cup in Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker as Pharaoh had interpreted to them. It's true down to the last detail. The author wants us to see clearly here that God has spoken through Joseph. This isn't coincidence. And then we get to verse 23. Maybe one of the most heartbreaking verses in Genesis. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. You can imagine the disappointment of waiting at his cell this first morning, right? Like sitting there hoping someone is going to come for him. Lunch passes, no one comes. The sun sets, darkness, silence. I mean, maybe he kept hoping for a couple days, even a couple weeks, that something was going to come to pass. But in the next chapter, we see that it's actually two whole years before anything comes to change, and he doesn't even know that something is going to happen at the end of those two years. And yet God is doing something in the midst of his suffering. God is preparing him, the man that he needs to be, so that God can use him mightily in Egypt. Preparing him to be the humble leader who not only rescues Egypt from famine, but the whole surrounding region. And we know God can use our suffering as well. Our third connection point today is this. In our suffering, God is shaping us into the likeness of Jesus and preparing us for eternity with him. God uses suffering in our lives to shape us just like he did in Pharaoh's. Sorry, Joseph's. (laughs) And suffering is a powerful tool to mold us into the likeness of our Savior Jesus if we will allow it. Because suffering either causes you to become bitter or it drives you to the feet of Jesus. If it causes you to become bitter, then I would argue maybe you don't fully grasp the gospel. But at the feet of Jesus, beautiful things can happen even in the midst of our suffering. We won't always see the resolution in this lifetime. We won't always understand why in this lifetime, but we can suffer knowing that it's not in vain. 2 Corinthians 4 tells us this. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal Weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Read that in the context of understanding that Paul suffered greatly. 
Paul was beaten near death for the sake of the gospel on multiple occasions. He's not trivializing suffering here. And yet, when he speaks of suffering, he refers to it as light and momentary. He tells us that in comparison to the glory that awaits us in heaven, even the worst suffering in this life cannot compare. C.S. Lewis uh, puts it beautifully in one of my favorite books, The Great Divorce. He says, That is what mortals misunderstand. They say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it, not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. Brothers and sisters, we live with hope, knowing our God who loves us is coming to make all things new. And how can we know this? We know this because the one who suffered better than Joseph, the one who suffered better than us, Jesus, our great high priest who has suffered with us and for us, Jesus who humbled himself, taking on the form of a servant, Jesus who died a criminal's death, one thing that suffering cannot be. It cannot be a sign that God is indifferent towards us because God willingly sent Jesus to suffer so that we might have new life. So my encouragement as we end, as you go out, is this. Suffer well, knowing that nothing in this life can compare to the glorious reality that awaits you in heaven. Persevere in the faith, knowing that you are loved. Let me pray. Father, I think even on a morning like this of the people in this room who are suffering, I pray that you would bring comfort to those situations. But most of all, I pray that you'd give each one of us a confidence in what you are doing. That even though we don't have the answers, we don't know the why, often we can still know that you are good that you love us and that you want what is best for us that even in the midst of suffering you're doing things in our life to shape us and mold us into the people that you want us to be and that you father have sent jesus to suffer for us so we're not alone so that we have someone to relate to, but also so that we have been forgiven, that we've been saved for what we have done. So let us live as a people. Live as a people who, even in the darkest moments, shine the love of Jesus to those around us. That even in suffering, we boldly proclaim the name of Jesus to those around us. In Jesus' name, amen.